2: Welcome to Money Making Conversations. I am your host, Rashawn McDonald. It is important to understand that everybody travels a different path to success. That is because your brand is different. The challenges you face in your life will be different. So stop reading other people's success stories and really start writing your own. Now, you can be motivated by their success. I'm not denying that because their stories can offer direction and hype and hope. But remember this, you can reach your goals, but it's through your planning and your committed effort that will get you there. My next guest is Mariana Van Zeller. She's an award-winning investigative journalist. She's the co-founder of Muck Media and host of exec- and executive producer of Traffic It with Mariana Van Zeller. She won the DuPont Award for Fusion Investigation, Death by Fentanyl, when she tracked the pharmaceutical and clandestine sources of the daily, deadly opioid. For her report, Rape on the Reservation, she received a prestigious Livingstein Award for Young Journalists and a documentary on prescription drug abuse and pill trafficking. The OxyContin, OxyContin, Express. We're honored to have her on the show because she was honored by the Peabody Award. She's on the show to talk about a show that airs every Wednesday on National Geographic, Traffic It with Mariana Van Zeller. Please welcome to Money Making Conversation. She scares me, but I respect her, Mariana Van Zeller. How you doing there? I'm doing great, Rishon. Thank you so much for having me. First of all, let's talk about this show. That, you know, Your background tells the story. You're, you're, you're an investigative reporter. And I'm going to just tell you my little history about people who I respect like they Christiana and poor of a CNN. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of her. In fact, my daughter's name comes from her. And so when I look at investigative reporters, I, I look at that type of person who goes behind the scenes. The story is sometimes bigger than their own safety. OK, and, and I look at it like you. How did you get into that? And what mindset drives you for a series like this that appears on National Geographic?
1: Absolutely. I I can tell you how it all started. And it started pretty early on when I was 12 years old. Mm -hmm. I essentially I used to watch the night news show with my family growing Mm -hmm. up in Portugal. And I'd listen to these anchors on Portuguese television, talk about what was happening all around the world with so much knowledge. I had no idea they were reading from a teleprompter. But that (laughs) was when I decided, okay, this is it. I want to be a journalist because I want to Travel around the world and gain all this knowledge wow. about the world, mm-hmm. and so it's sort of launched me into my quest, which wasn't always easy. Mm-hmm. As coming to the United States and doing journalism here.
2: Now, this series, uh, you know, you have a company. I mentioned it in the in the title, Muck Media. What exactly is Muck Media?
1: Well, Muck is a Muck Media is a media production company. We do everything from documentaries, docu series and uh we've uh you know produced a bunch a couple of uh award winning documentaries recently which i'm really proud of and now we have this new series on National Geographic Channel, which I'm not only the host, but also the executive producer. of.
2: Which carries a lot of weight. Uh, I'm very familiar with the power of an executive producer. You know, the bottom line, you know, the creative line and you're a decision maker. But more importantly, you're the talent, the lead talent. Now, you mentioned that you're married and I'm looking at these titles. Let's go through some of the storylines. Illegal Firearms. That sounds dangerous. Steroids, you can get by with that. Lottery scams, cocaine, that sounds dangerous. Counterfeit currency, that sounds dangerous. Fentanyl, that can be dangerous. Tiger trade, that sounds dangerous. Okay. How does he take all this responsibility within himself? And that's the world that you live in, that you operate out of. Because it is danger, though, correct?
1: It is. I've been covering black markets for over 15 years, right. almost my entire career as a journalist. Mm-hmm. And the uh, reason why mainly is because I realized very early on that we know so much about the legal economy, the mm-hmm. formal economy, you know, the, we have television stations, magazines, mm-hmm. whole mm-hmm. organizations mm-hmm. devoted to analyzing all the twists and turns and up and downs, all the IPOs, everything that happens in the formal economy. And yet this informal economy, these black and gray markets, actually make up for half of the global economy. And we know so very little about them. Right. So I saw this sort of opportunity to do a whole show where in each episode, we explore these black markets and we see who, what we can learn from them and who also, who are the operators, who are these traffickers and smugglers.
2: Do you consider yourself courageous?
1: I'm not comfortable with patting myself in the back like this, but I will tell you one thing. I, I think in a battle in my head, between fear and curiosity, curiosity tends to win always. And sometimes, that's not such a good thing. But right. mostly, it sort of works in my favor.
2: Well, I, when you said I was reading some extra information about it in a different commercials, different interviews, you said that sometimes you feel being a female can be an advantage in the type of stories that you're pursuing. Explain that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I've learned that also early on in my career. I think that women are seen as less threatening, especially mm-hmm. in sort of a male-dominated world, such as black markets around the world. Um, I also think that in so many of the places that I've been, I've been told that I've been the only woman to ever step foot in those locations such as undisclosed cocaine and yes. Uh, you know, meth labs, drug labs around the world. So I think there's a novelty aspect to that as well, that's sort of disarming for the people that I'm interviewing. Mm -hmm. And I also think, and I think perhaps this is the most important reason why, I think women tend to be more empathetic. They tend to sort of, uh, um, you know, relate to the world around them with more empathy and less judgment. And I think that goes a long way in the way that I approach my journalism and the reason to why I gain access into these worlds, because I make it very clear from the start that even when I'm talking to people that I, you know, that are part of these cartels or these criminal organizations, that I am there to listen to their stories. And of course, I do not condone what they do. But ultimately, my job is to listen to their stories. So I'm there to listen and not judge.
2: Well, you know, you the word cartel, you know, drug dealers you know, a lot of people don't walk away for those conversations. How do you, from a mindset standpoint, because you're using National National Geographic, you're going under that, so that helps you maybe calm them down that you're not coming in there from a, a DNA agent, but they're still suspicious. You're talking about people who really want to survive and know they have a short term of success. How do you... Rationalize, because, because you're a different person. Understand this. I'm coming from a person that I would never do what you can do because you're special. You're a unique talent that can be doing an interview in a very violent and potentially dangerous situation and potential life-threatening situation and remain calm. That's very important because you can't exhibit any qualities that something's wrong. If they saw you nervous or saw you sweating, that could signal that this can be something that you're not saying is going to happen. It may go differently. How do you break down those different steps, Pre- securing the story, then proceeding through the process of securing the interview and then protecting their identity? Because that's equally important to your survival.
1: Absolutely. So, so much happens before we actually hit the throat, you know, Mm -hmm. so much uh, making sure that, um, you know, that we're we're the safest, that we're minimizing the risk at every turn, Um, you know, because ultimately no story is worth the life.
2: Absolutely. Mm -hmm.
1: But once we do get there, and and then there's also so much that happens for to sort of convince people to Mm -hmm. allow us into their worlds and to give us access into these black markets. And I think You mentioned it, and it is the biggest fear that almost everybody has when operating in these markets is the fact that they they want to absolutely make sure that we're not law enforcement. That's always the biggest fear. So there's all these underground, what I call these underground first dates, which is these moments where sometimes they want to meet the whole team. Sometimes it's just me, but with no cameras, no audio, nothing, uh, just to meet me and to make sure that I am, in fact, who I say I am, which is a journalist and I'm not law enforcement. So that takes, usually there's drinks involved and there's a lot Mm -hmm. of conversation just again to make sure that we can trust each other mm-hmm. and then i would say the most important thing to make sure that i that myself and my team stay safe is that we have to be able to trust to to treat people with trust and respect right. and if we treat people with trust and respect usually they treat us with trust and respect back right. so if i were to show up and if i was nervous and suspicious and if I showed up with, you know, a big group of bodyguards and security right. with with guns or whatnot. Right. Um, or with even with a, a, a body flatjack or Flat any jacket. of that, mm-hmm. I'm essentially giving them the message that I don't trust them and I don't right. feel comfortable with them. So with them. So I think one of the most important things and really the key is to show them that after all this time that we spent talking before we even bring our cameras, that I am here to listen to your stories and that I trust you and I respect you. And and that goes such a long way.
2: Okay. here's something interesting here. I got the fact that you want to get the story. Why do they want to tell you their story?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's a combination of factors. I think ego plays a long uh, role in it. You know, these are people that are some of the best in the business of what they do. You know, the best cocaine chemist, the best person at making fake U.S. dollars, the best uh, um, fentanyl wrapper, whatever it is, and sometimes Many times their families don't even know what they do, so we give them an opportunity by disguise, disguising their faces, mm-hmm. changing their identities, mm-hmm. even changing their voices at times, to be able to talk to us and tell us what they love to do and what they're so passionate about or what they're so good at doing. Secondly, I think it's impunity. You know, in a lot of these parts of the world, they've been able to operate for so long with complete impunity, they, did, they don't really see a downside in speaking to national geographic. And then I think lastly, it's this very human quality that we all want to be understood. They know full well that as traffickers, as criminals, or as outlaws, they are considered to be the bad guys in our society. Right. And a lot of times they go into those businesses because of a lack of opportunity. And we give them a chance to tell us their stories and to perhaps be even fit for just a little bit to be
3: understood.
0: well,
2: you know, when I look at it, when I look at some of the storylines of the subject title illegal firearms, I understand that impact the lottery scams, you know, people misled, cocaine, uh, the counterfeit currency that scares me the most uh, because that can that can bring down a, um, uh, an economy. You know, you don't know this money just being floating out to fentanyl, steroids. Now, steroids seems to be a drug that. Somebody wants to take it unlike cocaine how does that how does that impact people in general steroid use
1: Yeah it's incredible you know it was of all of those i think it's the one that i knew um, one of the ones that i knew the least amount about mm-hmm. and what i hadn't realized and we came to discover with its reporting in this episode was that it's truly all around us. And I used to think that people doing steroids were either, you know, athletes that were doing it legally, or it was being done in gyms, but sort of in the secret locations, or bodybuilding competitions. But what I didn't realize is that we spoke to suburban moms who are taking steroids, teenagers still in high school who are taking steroids. It is a, it's become sort of a phenomena that is happening all around us. We filmed with a steroids dealer who was going from gym to gym selling steroids inside locker rooms in the gym. We filmed him also as he went to a parking lot to meet a dad whose kids go to the same school as his kids. And we saw a steroid deal happening right out in the open. Um, You know, they weren't even trying to hide it. So it was a lot more widespread than I initially knew it was.
2: Let me ask you this, because you are saying that. So if somebody's dealing in steroids... Will they get the same um, uh, police uh, attention as somebody dealing in crack or cocaine?
1: They do. It, you know, it's complicated. Um, it, it's sort of a little bit of a gray market right. about how much you can't sell. You're not supposed to sell it without prescription. Right. Uh, you're not supposed to acquire it without prescription. Um, But it's a lot more of a gray market than it is, let's say, fentanyl, you know, which is right. the mm-hmm. most dangerous drug in America. So there is a little bit of a gray market. And in fact, one of the main car- characters in our film is a guy called Tony Huge, who not only has sort of a, a hidden underground lab where he's making a lot of these uh, performance enhancing drugs. He's also administering it uh, on himself uh, out in the open. We didn't have to disguise his, his, his identity at all. He was very much out in the open. We also saw him administer some of the drugs he makes to another to a kid who was entering a bodybuilding competition. And so it's a little bit of a gray market. But um, but, you know, there are have been criminal cases and there are law enforcement agencies all around the country looking into these, um, you know, steroid illegal steroid uh, networks.
2: Now, one of the one of the subject matter that jumped out because during Netflix uh, came the the docuseries Tiger King. You know, just I guess walked us down a line of like disbelief and uh, soap opera mockery. But amongst all that was a a, a heavy dose of reality that tigers are abused or being traded and being uh, sold and being killed when they felt there was no need to keep them alive because they were more costly. It was much cheaper to kill them than to keep them alive. Talk about the uh, tiger trade uh, format that you get and how did that come about?
1: Yeah. So we started filming exactly a year, last November, October, actually, of last Mm -hmm, year. So it was mm -hmm. before Tiger King came out. Right. And uh, I was happy to see when Tiger King came out because although I do think it's focused mainly on the wild characters. Right, the mockery. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In this, you know, tiger world here in the United States, um, our documentary is more about the plight of the tigers worldwide. I do think it somehow shone a light on this very important topic, which is the plight of tigers around the world. So what we came to realize when, with our documentary, and one of the biggest reasons why we wanted to do this documentary to start with, was that there are actually more tigers in captivity in the United States than there are in the wild in the entire world. So when we read that, we realized immediately, okay, this is it. We have to well, well, do. Well, first there, gentle, when you make I that statement,
2: saying, when you make that statement, how do they know how do, that's a number that's crazy to me. Somebody can tell me there's more captivity than there is in the wild. That seems like that's a trackable number. Or are they just assuming that?
1: No, it's a sort of somewhat trackable. The problem is that there is not a lot, enough rules and regulations in the United States and enough oversight to tigers in the United States. But it is estimated that there are around 10,000, if not more, tigers in the U.S., usually in sort of, you know, roadside zoos and people's family homes, um, people who own them for whatever reason because they want to own a, a wild tiger a wild cat. But in the wild, there's only 3,500 to 4,000 tigers left. And it is there's a very high chance, and we spoke to several experts who told us, that within our lifetimes, we will not be able to see, there will not be any more tigers left in the wild. And partly, we have part of a responsibility as to why this is happening, we as
2: Americans. Wow. So with that being said, when you go through these different processes, I've mentioned several different subject matters that you're pursuing for this series, this on National Geograf- Geographic, excuse me, it airs every Wednesday called Traffic It, hosted by you and executive deduced by you. Um, which one of them popped off and went, like you said, steroids kind of caught you off guard because like me, I'm just thinking somebody out there popping up. And then you mentioned, and I know. When my daughter had knee surgery, they gave her steroids, you know, so it is it is administered for different use, you know, and things like that when you're recovering. OK, but when you see the illegal firearms, I get that. But the things that jumped out to me was the lottery scams and the counterfeit currency scared me because that's money that's flowing around. It's supposed to be valid money, but obviously they figured out a system and they can get away with it so, so long where they eventually may get caught, They may not get caught. So talk, walk me through the lottery scam subject matter and then also the counterfeit currency subject matter.
1: Yeah, the lottery scam was one of the first episodes we filmed. And to me, it was a really important one to make and still one of my favorite ones. And I think probably because we have all sort of received those phone calls where people, somebody says that, You've won. uh, Have you shopped at Walmart recently? Well, you've won a big prize and you won a Mercedes-Benz, for example. And Mm -hmm. all you have to do in order to receive that Mercedes-Benz is you have to pay $2,000 in taxes or $500 for the transportation fee. And or, or they'll call you and say that you owe money to the electric company. and They are coming and switching off your electricity if you don't pay what you Oh, and a lot of people fall for this. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a friend here in Los Angeles who recently fell for this and paid a lot of money to a supposed electricity company that was Mm -hmm. fake. And so I really wanted to find out who is it? Who are the people on the other side of these phone calls? So we traveled to Jamaica, which has sort of become the front lines, uh, ground zero of scamming around the world for these, what are called lottery scams. And it was fascinating to meet the people on the other side of the the, the line and figure out why they do what they do, how much money they're making, how easy it is or difficult it is for them to scam and how they get their money, their hands on these lead lists with all the names of mm-hmm. Americans and phone numbers. So that was a fascinating uh, journey and one of my favorites for sure. And then on the other hand uh, when it comes to counterfeit money, it is actually the second oldest profession in the world. It's uh, <laughs> making fake US dollar or fake dollars, fake money in general. And it turns out that Over 60% of the fake dollars that are in circulation all around the world are made in Peru. So when we read that and we realized this is such a good and important story for us to do, to head over to Peru, to Lima, and meet. with. There are only a handful of families. Mostly it's a family network, family business, that operate in these, very out in the open sometimes, in these printing shops, essentially printing fake U.S. dollars and then finishing each single one by hand to make them look exactly like the
2: real deal wow (laughs) you know i would go let me go back to the lottery scam i i know i got a call and um and i'm I'm supposed to be the guy been through that done been there done that and about i owed money to the u.s government and i mean shook me up and the only thing really helped me i called my accountant and said, hey, call this person. This person is saying I owe money. Otherwise, I could have been a victim if I didn't have those resources. Because I'm just on this interview, I just gotta let you know, You know, somebody, why would somebody do that? Well, if you get that call, they can sound very authentic. And nobody wants to go to jail, want no, especially nobody wants to owe the government. And sometimes you don't know if you don't owe the government. So if somebody tells me you can remedy a problem, if, if you don't do it, you, you it can go away if you take care of it right now, you take care of it right now. And so what might be $500, I make mean $500, they may have done a hundred times. So, you know, that's how they make their money. You know, it might not be a, they might have got just 500 or a thousand. Imagine if they got it a thousand times. And that's that's what they're working on, that rotation number there that, that allows you to get up there to be able to build momentum to scam people. And so I, I just want to thank you. I want, I want, you one of my favorite people I've been waiting all day to interview because I, I you know, you're courageous you're a hero and like i said uh, a lot of people can't do what you do and you accept that you know and accept that you're you're a special person from that standpoint i'm just telling you from fact you know, I, I've been in this business a long time and you know, to see your story. I am a fan. You know, I, I love the work you've done. Uh, we talked about mucho, mucho more, which was fantastic. When I saw that, I, I fell in love with you even more because, I mean, you can, t- you can tell a story from compassion. You can tell a story from from dangerous situations uh, that are even life threatening to you. But throughout all, you're calm. And that's what you're doing is if you're calm, you're fluent and don't stop. And I hope, uh, hopefully, you know, in the future, I can bring you on my show and talk about other future projects. But every Wednesday on National Geographic is your show. Anything else before we wrap up?
1: Oh, no, I just want to say thank you so much for all those kind words. And I'd love to be if, if this is how you're going to talk about me. I'm going to come on the show <laughs> all the time because you just made me feel so happy. So I really appreciate
2: it. No, you're fantastic. The show is fantastic. And I, again, I, I'll do my best to promote it on all different levels of my social media and digital platforms. But more importantly, you know, I, 2021 is the year of the female and you are leading the way, my friend. Okay. Oh,
1: you're so sweet, Rashawn. Thank you so much. I truly appreciate it.
2: We we'll talk soon. If you want to hear more money making conversation interviews, please go to moneymakingconversation.com. I'm Rashawn McDonald. I'm the host.
3: In this season of giving, Kohl's has gifts for all your loved ones. For those who like to keep it cozy, find fleeces, sweaters, loungewear, blankets, and throws. Or support minority owned or founded brands by giving gifts from Human Nation and Shea Moisture.
0: There's a monumental shift in power at work. Employees are speaking up. Turnover is rising. Salaries are increasing. Hiring is tough. And burnout is real. It's time to unleash growth. It's time to transform your HR from powerless to powerful. Join ADP on February the 23rd. Reserve your spot now. Go to gettheplan.adp.com to register for the Work Interrupted Summit.